0: Amen. Great to see everyone. Really good to be here. If you're visiting, it is really good to have you with us. Uh, My name's Paul. I'm lead pastor here at Beck, and it really is a delight. And we're in a series in Mark. Uh, We've called it Cruciformed. It's kind of about discipleship, uh, following Jesus. We think that's really important. But uh, just as we start, um, I'd like to take you back to the 1980s okay, which looks something like this, yeah, who are we looking at there folks, Kajakugu, yeah, some of us were too shy, shy to shout that one out, that was one for folks in the age bracket, 45 to 60-ish, so we all looked like that back in the 80s, yeah, that's what we were like, I got saved 1985 in Swansea, wasn't brought up a Christian as such, kind of Christian background, Uh, it was, I have to say, it was a dramatic salvation in the sense that I just saw God change me. That's what he does. Maybe that's holding out hope to some of us here. You look at stuff in your own life, God can change you. Okay, I know there's stuff about you that's good, but there's some stuff that you're not as pleased with, or your situation maybe. God can go to work. And he went to work in my life, and it was a different world then, but it was a different world for Christians as well, wasn't it? This is a bit of a personal reflection, but I think there's something in it. What were the issues then for the contemporary Christian? Do you remember these people? Keith Green. Mention mentioned him. The other he's great, wasn't he? Keith Green and Amy Grant, they were like our cool hipster. You know, we held them up. They weren't idols. We didn't hold them up as idols, but we liked them. And uh, for the contemporary Christian... Back then, what were the issues? Well, I just remember getting saved and the issues being around kind of liberalism and evangelicalism. Does that ring any bells? You know, there were people that we weren't sure whether those of us who were evangelical, I just take that to mean kind of Bible believing. We emphasize we need to get saved individually. We need to respond to God individually. But we were a little bit wary of people that we thought were liberals, what we called liberals. okay, Because we weren't sure they believed the Bible. Okay, And it's a good thing to believe the Bible, by the way. But we leave up to God, who is going to be in heaven or not, don't we? Yeah. I do, anyway. I yeah. no, don't know you, but I do. And we were also suspicious, because sometimes liberals, again, this is just personal reflection, uh, liberals, you know, they emphasize kind of social action, getting involved in society. And the question was then, but are we telling people about Jesus? Now you need both and. You proclaim in word and deed. Okay, maybe sometimes evangelicals haven't always proclaimed in deed, and sometimes maybe liberals haven't always proclaimed in word. But we proclaim Jesus in word and deed. We were also very, you know, dubious, some of us, about. The charismatic and charismatic people, some of us weren't, some of us were shaking our heads. No, we were. we were right on charismatic, swinging from the chandeliers, rocking and rolling. But some of us, we weren't sure. I'm just saying I got saved into a Welsh Baptist church and there were undoubtedly people there. They weren't sure about charismatic and speaking in tongues. These gifts of the Spirit. I can remember I'd, I went to a Pentecostal church from my Welsh Baptist church. I went to a Pentecostal church and I spoke in tongues. Okay, and I came back and I told a mate of mine, I said, I've spoken in tongues. And he, and he kind of went, I, th- I need to think about that. Anyway, we, you know, obviously we've resolved all these issues. We know exactly where we stand now on all these things. If you don't, let's have a chat. It'd be good to have a chat, wouldn't it? So that was kind of some of the things going on within Christianity. From the outside, I, I do remember, rightly, there were concerns you know, communism loomed large. Do you remember communism? <laughs> do you remember Communism. Like 1945 to 89, and don't get me wrong, it's still around now, isn't it? In parts of the world, it's still a threat. We think, godless atheism. But you know, we were praying for the persecuted church under communism. Real concerns. So there were issues again, personal reflection. There were issues within Christianity, and there were, you know, there was certainly that external threat of communism. In, certainly in the UK, I don't recall it feeling like there was a threat to Christianity itself, that there was you know, the existence of Christianity itself, the right to be a Bible-believing Christian itself was you know, a threat or was threatened. However, I think today's a bit different, it feels to me like. I think there are currents in society where we need to think of this sort of thing. If you can flip there, James. James is up, in the sound, up, in the, up here now. He's not down here. So there's issues in society today. Some of you will know that lady on the left is a lady called Kate Forbes, who is part of the SNP. She's a Bible-believing Christian. And she's made a stand. She holds orthodox biblical views on certain things like marriage and what have you. And she's shared those views in public. And there's been a bit of a debate. Can orthodox Bible-believing Christians have a role, in her case, in politics, but in the public space? Can we hold to biblical Christianity, and do we have a right to hold to that and step into the public space? And there, on the right there, there's a lady who was arrested for praying, now, in an exclusion zone around an abortion clinic. Now, I understand there are real sensitivities and issues around in that subject area, but fundamentally this lady was praying in her head and arrested. And some have commented, is that you know, thought we, we can get arrested for what we think? in our heads. So there's some real issues out there, aren't there? And there's legislation being passed that I think make it difficult, my take is, makes it difficult to be a Christian. And we find ourselves, as I've said before, I think, on the wrong side of moral orthodoxy today. So there's, there's a challenge then to the ability for us in, in society to be public Christians. Are we allowed to do that? Well, if that is anything, if there's anything there that resonates... We need to engender then, and nurture, don't we, a robust discipleship among us as Christians. Nominal Christianity may struggle in that context. So we need to know that we are going to stand for Jesus as disciples. And that's part of what this series is about, cruciform disciples shaped by the cross. I think if we are disciples shaped by the cross, we will be robust disciples. And we're in Mark 3 today, if you have a Bible or phone or whatever, we're in Mark 3, and I'm going to look at some perspectives on following Jesus, on who Jesus was, and what it means to follow him. And just to crack on, firstly then, the first group of people, the first perspective are the cultured, the cultural elites, the cultural elites. Can we look at Mark 3, verses 1 to 6? James, thanks very much. It says this, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled ha- uh, hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Like, Would you not answer that question? (laughs) But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. I think Jesus is angry there, particularly at the attitude. And deeply distressed that this attitude would hold people like this imprisoned. Distressed at their stubborn heart, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then the Pharisees went out and proclaimed Jesus and celebrated the fact he'd healed a man imprisoned by a sickness. I just, it, 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 the mind boggles, doesn't it? Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I just, I just don't get it, that response. So, what's going on here? Well, the Pharisees were the intelligentsia like those uh, Russian intelligentsia from around the time of just the birth of communism. They shaped religious and political thought. And what they were seeking to do, I think, was this. Using today's language, these Pharisees wanted to cancel Jesus. They wanted to cancel Jesus. There was no place for Jesus in the religious and public thought of the day. They had stubborn hearts, and they were absolutely resolute on this. Seeking for a way to kill him. He's, hang, on, hang, on, hang on, He's just healed a man. He healed through his ministry. They accused him of healing by demonic power. They just could not see it. They wouldn't see it. And they wanted Jesus out of the way, quite literally. They wanted to cancel him. There was no place for Jesus, and if you like, in Christianity, in their vision of society. And they couldn't believe that anyone would follow him. How can anyone believe this stuff? And there was utter condescension and ridicule if anyone did. Look at John 7, 45 to 49. Jesus has just spoken on the temple steps. He's proclaimed and said, if anyone comes to me, rivers of living water will flow out of them. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? They were, they were now at the point where they were ready to get rid of him. No one, it's, it's like they're saying, we were just astounded. No one ever spoke this way, the way this man does. He just had words of life. We wanted to hear him. It was just something, what he proclaimed. That's, that's, that's encouraging, isn't it? Whatever people think of us, say about Christianity, hopefully when we speak, we will speak words of life to people. There'll be something in what we say that people just hear something they, they're not hearing elsewhere. A hope, a joy. You mean he's deceived you too? The Pharisees retorted. Have, listen, have any of us, the rulers or the Pharisees, believed in him? I mean, we're the benchmark. Have any of us believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, I mean, how can they believe it? Such condescension here. There's a curse on them. So there's absolute intellectual snobbery here. The problem is this. The Pharisees were clever, but not wise. They were clever, but not wise. And so there, was, there wasn't much to imitate in their lives. I think that could be something that's out there in society. People who are clever, but not wise. I think it's biblical, I'll prove it in a minute. And because of that, actually, I find when I get, you know, sometimes I get a bit frustrated with what's being said and the portrayal of Christianity. I find myself, though, thinking, but here's the thing, I don't know you've got anything to offer me. Because I know Jesus, and I know the order that has been brought to my life, and I know the joy and the peace he gives me. So even though you may speak against Jesus and Christianity, I don't know what you've got to offer me. And actually, when you look at a lot of folks Holding worldviews that are out there. Actually, you don't have to scratch too far below the surface, and this has been the way throughout history that the clever their lives can sometimes be a mess. There have been plenty of philosophers throughout history who have finished their lives depressed, suicidal. Truth should lead to a healthy, ordered life, shouldn't it? A truth that tallies up with how reality is. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he goes on to say, you know, God's foolishness, well, you know, before the world, the Christianity, Christian faith is foolishness, but it's God's wisdom. I hope, friend, you're here... And you'd rather have God's wisdom and live by that, even if it's seen as foolish in the world. There's a cost to that. That's what it means to be a cruciform disciple. There is a cost to that. But we've got to embrace the wisdom of God. It's hearing his word. It's living according to his spirit and obedience to that. And let's remember in it all, though, Ephesians 6 talks about I won't read it now, but if we can flash it up. Ephesians 6 tells us, in it all, we don't wrestle though with flesh and blood. If we find people who are speaking out and they get our goat and they annoy us a bit and I really don't like what they say about Christians or whatever, what's the solution? Well, let's pray. Let's pray that they're saved. Again, it wouldn't be the first time that a powerful influencer, again in today's language, is saved. Paul is the epitome of, Of an influencer dramatically transformed by the gospel. So let's pray because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. So let's take authority over the strongholds and the powers and principalities. 2 Corinthians 10, it tells us, doesn't it? We take captive every thought and demolish every pretension. We take it captive in prayer and by proclaiming truth because truth will set people free. So that's the first group, the cultural elites. Secondly, who else have we got? We've got the crowd. We've got the crowd. We'll come back to what that is. Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark 3, 7 to 12. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the impure spirits saw him, they too fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. It is an interesting phenomenon in Scripture, the crowd. There's 38 references in the book of Mark, and many in Matthew. The crowd is a phenomenon. And I like the fact that there's a realistic appraisal of the crowd, if you like, because it speaks to them of humanity. There's a realistic appraisal of humanity in Scripture. What we had here, those photos, thanks James, you can flash that up. The crowd here, this is Beatlemania. Anyone remember Beatlemania? 64, there we go, Jeff, one or two. Anyone remember, here's one for us, Rollermania. Anyone remember the Bay City Rollers? Yeah? Google it. That's an afternoon wasted right there. (laughs) Roller mania. I kid you not, this was absolutely Jesus mania. It really was. Thousands followed him. This is in a time. There's no mobile phones. There's no Facebook. There's no organising. People are just hearing a word. Can you imagine medieval rugby... Okay, there's no contact, there's no tech, there's no that. And you hear a word about someone and it grows to such an extent, you've just got to be there. Thousands of us from our little medieval hovels go and follow this. What's going on? What's going on? And Jesus generates a huge crowd such that there was a huge health and safety risk. People are pressing in. He has to get a boat to go out to the sea to preach. His, his Facebook follows and likes are going through the roof. So who is... This crowd. Who is this crowd? I do like, it's, I don't, I'm not sure it's absolutely, if you like, um, the whole story in terms of the interpretation, but I do like Matthew, uh, Mark 12, verse 37. It says this, The common people heard Jesus gladly. That word for common people there is the crowd. The common people heard him gladly. Gladly, What happens is this, Jesus leaves the synagogues and he goes to where ordinary people lived. He goes to the streets, the hills, the seaside, and to people's homes. And so should we, shouldn't we? We should go to where people are at. But I do think there's something in this, I think, certainly think there's a challenge for us as the church in the West, the common people heard him gladly. Now in one sense, we're all common. But there's certainly an element. There are huge swathes of UK society untouched. The inner cities, the rougher states. I'm not saying, by the way, they're common and we're not. Okay? You understand that? But there are huge swathes of society in this country untouched. My understanding is the Talking Jesus report found that 80% 80% of the church in the UK has a university degree. 80%. That says something about us, doesn't it? But here's the point. Historically, when God has moved, it has often been amongst the poor and the broken, a certain socio-economic demographic. Wesley, in Bristol, amongst the miners... He went, even went to the Geordies. And people said to him, wow, you're going to the rough part there. And he said, he came to call not, sin, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Azusa Street. The Spirit poured out amongst black society. Those looked down upon by the rest of US society. Whenever God has moved, you often find it. The poor and the broken come in. So what's Jesus' response here to these crowds? Well, there's compassion. Look at Mark chapter 6. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He sees these lost crowds. We need shepherds. We all need to have a shepherding, caring pastoring, if you like, nurturing heart. That's how we're to do church. Psalm 68, verse 6, talks about he sets the lonely in families. I think if we are to reach society, we're to be a community with deep, meaningful, committed relationships, not an organization with programs. Let me say that again. If we're to reach society, churches are to look like communities with loving, committed relationships, not organizations with programs. And to the extent that we have been a church that has been an organization with programs, we need to undo that a bit. Now, you still need good organization. We still need health and safety and policies and programs to some extent and good activities. We still need that. You know, this morning doesn't just come together. But more and more important are our relationships, is our commitment to one another and to those outside the church. Because I think that's what will impact people. Jesus looked at the crowd and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus here isn't fooled by his popularity as we continue through here. He's not fooled by people's following him. Look at John chapter 2, verse 23. This is Jesus' attitude to the crowd, and it's so countercultural. It says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew all. What was in each person? Jesus understood that as human beings we can be fickle. And so he didn't entrust himself to the crowd. It's so countercultural, isn't it? In our celebrity culture and even in the church, where all too often we can be about numbers, Jesus has a completely different attitude. Or at least he makes it hard for the crowd. To follow him. I'll come back to that. So what was Jesus' perspective then? This is a significant verse for us, I think, at this time. John five nineteen it says, Jesus gave this answer. It was to the Pharisees. I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Jesus did only what he saw his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus realised, as there's this clamour and this crowd following him, and all the noise and all the pressure, and Jesus, will you take over now? Are you going to establish your kingdom? Are you going to become king? Do it for our sake. Help us to be in the in crowd Jesus says, I can only do what I see my father doing. To do that, he had to cut out the noise of the crowd. Let me ask you, friend, what noise is in your head? What are the voices? What's the clamour? What's the opinion? Whose opinions? Are you able to hear what your father wants you to do am I there's plenty of clamour doing this job do we do do we hear do we listen do we cut out the noise it's very interesting Jesus response to the crowd what does he do he dismisses them he withdraws from them have you ever noticed have you ever thought you know Jesus does a miracle what does he do what might our Western Christianity do if a miracle is done or some, there's some wonderful community work or what have you? We'd want it in the local, in the Rugby Observer. What does Jesus do? Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. What? No, 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 Jesus. People aren't going to come to know you and. No, don't tell anyone. This has to be genuine. I learned quite a lesson of this when I was down in London. Um, I we had soul soul in the city, so Soul Survivor sent loads of volunteers to London. Okay, I, at the time I was a young, trendy, hip youth worker, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh and so we had some volunteers at our place, and we were doing this stuff on one of the local estates. And there was a bit of thing, you know, let's get in touch with the papers and all that sort of stuff. And I just felt, you know what, let's not, there's other things, let's crack on with some other things over that. Anyway, it turned out one of the guys, one of the youth workers from one of the local churches of England, Pucker Church, nice church, better than us. One of the, church, one of the youth workers, every now and again for some reason, I don't know how, met with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Like, we'd have a one-to-one. He was like a youth worker in an Anglican church, and somehow he kind of, whether he just filled him in on what was going on in youth or whatever. Anyway, so he tells the Archbishop of Canterbury what we're doing. As a result of which, the Archbishop of Canterbury comes to our project. The Archbishop of Canterbury turns up in like, it was like um, something off a, a movie, you know, with henchmen and like blacked out windows in this van and stuff. It's so cool. So I'm driving around with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. I've met Rowan Williams. Just saying. saying. What happened as a result of that was all the press, all the local press, all the estate press wanted photos of the Archbishop of Canterbury on this local estate and all the rest of it. And it just taught me a lesson. Jesus can look after his own publicity. Now, there's nothing wrong with sharing with, you know, but let not that be the drive that we splash. Hey, look at what we're doing as Christians. I think we've got to be sensitive with some of this stuff as well. You imagine if you're on the receiving end of some of the good works we do. Wouldn't it feel a bit patronising that there's churches going into local estates and we've done a community cleanup, whatever it is, and they're all good things to do. You hear me right. Don't tell them, says Jesus. Don't make a splash. It will look after itself. If something's been seeded here, it will grow Like a mustard seed. The kingdom is like a mustard seed that starts small. It's nurtured and it grows to become the biggest tree. It's so important, friends, that we learn to do only what we see our Father doing. Because what's the alternative? People-pleasing. People-pleasing, isn't it? People-pleasing. Any people-pleasers here I think, it's, I think it's all of us. I do, I genuinely do. If there's one thing I think we struggle with as human beings, it's people-pleasing. And it will wreck us, living to impress others at the mercy of opinions. Here are maybe, just having to think, here are maybe some possible signs that we might be a people-pleaser. Some may or may not be known to me personally, in terms of I've been about this. People-pleasing, we can get worn out because we've got no boundaries. Our diaries are often way too full. Way too full. When people ask us, how are you doing? Busy. Tired. Well, we might be people-pleasing. People-pleasing, where we have conversations in our head with people about situations that we're going into with them, where we're working out what we're going to say to them, either to justify ourselves or to, you know, whatever it is, impress them or whatever it is. We have conversations does anyone else do this or is this just me I have conversations in my head with some of you <laughs> <laughs> we hide our true feelings and thoughts such that the problem with that is this you bury them down what you really think and therefore it comes out as passive aggressive anyone experience that I don't just mean on the receiving end of it by the way don't just judge others is it, is it us We use language like should, must, ought to, need to, need to. Why? Because we're trying to please others. It's something I've got to do to please others. And there'll certainly be a lack of peace. I think there's help with that. And it's in this area of us choosing and resolving and being at peace about doing only what we see our Father doing. Is that good enough for us? Do we know what our Father's saying to us? And are, are we only going to do what he tells us? I think there's help in the third group here, just wrapping up. Who are these lot? The commissioned. The commissioned. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19 says this. Jesus went up on a mountainside. He had to go on a mountainside, away from the crowd, to work out, Whom to call? And he called them, those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons, just because of time. So he calls these people. He calls these disciples, who he calls apostles. So who were this lot? Next slide, James. They are a pretty calamitous bunch. All right, they are pretty... Ryan has started using a word in the office when things go a bit wrong, you know. It's a shambles. Okay, this lot are shambolic, aren't they? They're a bit hopeless and hapless. We've got zealots along with collaborators. We've got hotheads who just fly off the handle and speak their mind and don't think about what they're saying. We've got nondescripts. Does anyone know anything about Thaddeus? We've got doubters. When Jesus called James and John sons of thunder, that is not a good nickname. These guys want to nuke their enemies. These would, these would have fitted well in some you know, political parties in the States maybe. And although it, it was Judas who betrayed Jesus, all of them abandoned him. All of them ran for cover. They all let him down. I don't know about you, but that really encourages me. That really encourages me because it sounds like us. It does. It... All right, let me just tell you. It is. It's us. Jesus takes this group and forges them together. If I had time, there's a quote here by a guy called Hendrickson about how Jesus took These varied personalities. Not just different personalities, but actually in opposition to each other. I'm sure they had some right old ding-dongs. And Jesus takes them and by his grace and mercy and spirit, forges them together. There's hope for us yet, folks. That God might yet use us. Because he used this lot. How did he do it? Look at verse 14. He calls them to be with him, that he might send them out. They're called to be with him. If we're going to be forged together like that, if we're going to do only what we see our father doing, if we're going to hear his voice, we've got to be with Jesus. And friend, it comes back to your individual, my individual relationship with him. This cannot be it. I hope this is being with him. I think the worship. I love the fact we can be with him in worship. But this cannot be it. It's our individual walk with him. Where we quieten the crowd. Where we listen to him. Where we read his word, hear him speak, where we know he loves us by being with him. It's our own individual devotional time. It's our time as a small group. It's godly friendships where we just discern God speaking. So they made space to be with him and then he sent them out. We are sent out from this place this morning into this week, aren't we? We go to proclaim. Jesus said they had authority to drive out demons. We can have confidence as we go if we've been with him. So to finish, we're going to come to communion now. We want the Spirit, James, next slide, thanks. We want the Spirit to forge us together into a family on mission where we have loving, committed relationships, where we're seeking to hear what our Father is saying and do only what He tells us to do. And I think communion is one of the main ways we come to be with Him because we come right to the centre of our faith, the cross, We come to the cross and we come to understand what it is he's done for us there. So this is a key part of our coming. We invite you now, if you know the Lord, you believe you're saved, you've put your trust in him and you're looking to live for him. If you've put your trust in him, but maybe you've got some question marks about, am I living for him? Well, this is a great place to come and recommit as we come this morning. We're encouraged, aren't we, to examine ourselves as we come to the table so that we don't do this in a way that's unworthy. So we're going to spend just some time to start off with reflecting on our own following of Jesus. What does that look like for us at the moment? Are there things we need to bring to Him? Tell Him we're weary or struggling. Come to this meal for sustenance. Are there, some, are there voices in your head? <laughs> are you wrestling with opinions or the opinion of others or a situation, a relationship? And you're not sure... Father, I'm not I'm not sure I'm hearing you. Well ask him to speak. Can ask the band to come back up. And I've asked I've asked Dave just to minister to us as we Make space individually to hear him, hear the Father i've got a couple of verses just to read to help us in this reflection. so maybe you, maybe you do want to close your eyes, don 't feel you have to. but let me just read these and just let the spirit speak through these verses James could you put up I think it's Mark 8 Folks this is how our discipleship is to look it says this Come holy spirit And he called the crowd to him along with his disciples Aren't you pleased? You can be in the crowd. There's opportunity, invitation for us. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Hmm. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This is a challenge from the study notes that we're looking at in life groups. Thanks, James. The challenge is, are you ready to walk the road from Galilee to Jerusalem, from life to self-sacrificial death so that others may know Jesus? Are we willing bring people along with us and show them the way to follow Jesus we're just going to take a few minutes now just in the Lord's presence for you to prepare your heart for communion I'm going to pray in a minute and thank God for the bread and the wine and then we'll take communion but just for the time being let's spend a few minutes just in silence just before the Lord ourselves make space for him to speak.